It's time to get real with Robin. Join veteran broadcaster Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, as they delve into subject matters that most are afraid to talk about, but need to hear. And now, get ready to get real. On the morning he killed himself, he said he got an email and had to go into work to put something together. I wanted to ask him if I could go with him and just sit there. But instead, I simply offered to make him a sandwich for lunch. And without hesitation, he said, no, baby, I'll be fine. It won't be long. I'll be haunted by those words forever. And then he left, taking his gun with him. And he shot himself in the head, in the sterile concrete parking structure of his high-rise office building. I felt like I lost my husband so quickly within the course of a month. But I'm now starting to realize how hard he must have been on himself all the time. The constant striving to be perfect at work, to be the perfect husband, son, uncle, brother, and friend. And then living with this deep, unbearable shame that he wasn't performing to the impossibly high standards he had set for himself. He said at times how he couldn't turn off his head. But again, I didn't understand the severity of that statement. These powerful words are not mine. They were written by Sidney Austin in an open letter to the senior partners of her husband's law firm after her husband, who appeared successful to all around him, took his own life. I, one of today's co-hosts, Kirk Nermy, share these words with you, not because this is a show about suicide or stress exclusively in the legal profession, but because they personify the ultimate manifestation about how the, how the effect stress can have in all our lives. Of course, there are others, and today we're going to talk about some of these realities with the hope that you can begin to manage the stresses in your life in healthier ways. With us today is a guy I've known for well over a decade. He was a county attorney here in Phoenix who battled alcohol addiction and reformed his life and was actually, like myself, a recovering attorney. He now manages a sober house and just happens to be one my favorite realtor and a guy I'm proud to call my friend. Jeff Trudgeon, welcome to the show, Jeff. Hey, wow, thanks. Haven't been introduced like that. And, of course... Rockin' Robin, she has not quit her show. She's just been sitting quietly, which is, we all know, hard for Robin. Oh, shut and up. And she is here today. Well, I had to break the... Yeah, the yeah, break the stigma bit. of Robin being quiet. But no. she is here to, uh, you know, uh, guide this conversation and, and add her brilliance to it. So I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and talk about this topic as someone who uh, felt the consequences of professional stress in, in my life. In, in so many ways, not not in the same way that this tragic story indicates, but I'm sure, Jeff, that some of what I said kind of probably resonates with you and brings back some some memories of, of your life. You think? Yeah, I, I do think. And, you know, Jeff and I, like you say, having known each other well over a decade, we um, were both attorneys at one time in the uh, courtrooms of Mesa. And um, Jeff, I want to... Maybe if you could just, instead of me asking you a whole bunch of questions about it, maybe just talk about um, what stress led you to and 
um, just as a kind of an opening salvo, if you will. Sure. Um, again, thanks for that introduction. I actually don't uh, operate the sober house anymore, but I did for three and a half years okay. after I quit drinking. It was a very important part of my journey um, to where I am today. So the elevator version of how I got here today, um, I was a prosecutor for 14 years uh, for Maricopa County, pretty successful, did well at my trials, had a couple supervisor positions, was there for 14 years, um, but I didn't have a good way of coping with my stress. So I bottled it up all week, worked really hard. Uh, more specifically, I bottled it up in a 1.75 milliliter Jim Beam bottle, drank that on the weekends to get by, and uh, didn't really learn good stress coping skills until the last few years in my 40s. I haven't had a drink since a couple days before my 40th birthday, and uh, May 2nd coming up here is seven years sober for me. Congratulations. Thanks, that's, Robin. That's awesome, Jeff. And tell, tell us why you think, you said you're, you were maybe more of a binge, weekend binge drinker. Right. I was never an everyday drinker until the very end when it just got out of control, and it led to severe consequences. And just... Tell us about the stressors that you felt. I mean, did some of these words resonate with you in terms of performance and that sort of thing? Absolutely. Um, a lot of people are overthinkers and warriors like me, and a lot of jobs are stressful. But, but mine, being a prosecutor, was uniquely stressful for me because I'm kind of a control freak, and I'm also a perfectionist. And when you got 30 serious cases in your office, there's always something you could be doing and so you feel guilty not working all the time, and you don't have a good balance. If you're a warrior like me and just don't have good balance in your life, um, it doesn't usually end well. You can, you can drive yourself for a while, but at some point, you're going to burn out of your job at the least and maybe a lot worse consequences if you deal with them through drinking. Um, drinking took my mom. She died in, of her sleep, in her sleep, but uh, had been drinking a lot and... Uh, had unusual circumstances around how she died. Uh, so I just say she died of drinking because she was completely isolated. We'd had an intervention with her, and uh, she pushed back and just kind of circled the drain a little bit after that. I don't know if that's the right phrase. I don't want to be disrespectful, but yeah. let's just say at her funeral, she used to have tons of friends. There was probably a class of her former students, her family, and just a few other people. And that was so sad to me because she was in her late 50s and a very wonderful and charismatic person so she died so young she sure did wow did that did that have any impact on you as far as you realizing when you first started realizing you had a problem did that have any impact on you as to i'm gonna end up just like my mom if i don't change didn't have enough impact to quit for me to quit drinking um i was in my mid-20s i knew it got away from me sometimes uh like on a long weekend or a vacation but it wasn't impacting my work for many years after that and frankly, I judged her for not getting help um, when it was offered or before she had to die of a disease that you don't have to die from. So uh, I was very naive about alcoholism because I, I shouldn't have judged her at all. And I sure did. Jeff, what do you think? And when I was reading these words and when I was thinking about getting ready for this show, I thought about there's a unique posture. People don't necessarily think about lawyers as those who help people is a profession that helps people, right? Lawyers have a, a bad reputation. And when I thought about my stress as a lawyer, 
back in the day, you know, I thought about the people, right? And all these people that, that were impacted by the crime, but the families of the defendants that I had. And I, and I had occasionally had a few people that I believed were generally innocent or overcharged, and those were even more stressful, right? And I always thought, you know, that the guys and gals that were lawyers that only focused on money had a lot less to stress about, right? But there's always people behind money, and I'm just wondering how you feel like, because, you know, there's a lot of professions out there. Obviously, it's not just going to be lawyers listening to this conversation. There's a lot of professions out there, nurses, doctors, um, people that, you know, people like Robin who, who care for their elderly parents, all those kind of things, where there's that extra pressure to take care of people where, you know, you can lose yourself in that. Do you, th- do you think that's part of what happened looking back? Yes, I was, I was in a very stressful profession that certainly made things maybe come to a head earlier. I feel like if I was in a, a business-type job, maybe I would have uh, burned out and drank myself out of it after a few more years, right, if I didn't get help. Whereas I was really in a pressure cooker, and I didn't know how to uh, deal with it as an adult. I just didn't have – I had used alcohol for so long to, you know, cheer myself up or bring myself down from successes. Uh, I just didn't know how to relax without it. And I didn't have coping skills for when stress hit me during the week. I would just build up, build up, build up, go home, not talk to my wife about it because I didn't really want to talk to her about my sex crimes caseload, for example. You know, some sick stuff that also, also, I don't want to make it specific to that, but also was really tough for me to deal with because the consequences of messing up one of those cases on me would be, I probably would have quit my job. I mean, I just don't know if I could live with it or how my mind was wrapped up back then. And you know what's funny? I have cops, former law enforcement officer friends, and they talk about this consistently, how all of this affects first responders when they're dealing with these type of things on a daily basis, whether it's firefighters going in and seeing stuff that they don't normally see or law enforcement officers having to deal with things like sex crimes. We, as humans don't even look at the prosecuting attorneys or the defense attorneys. I mean, I know the defense attorneys, and you know, Kirk's talk about this many times, defending people that really are almost like the scum of the earth for doing bad things, but you, you're doing your job and you're on the other end as the prosecuting attorney seeing what some of these people have done to others. And we don't even think about that. We think, oh, lawyer, no big deal. He's cool. He goes to work, does his job, he's done. But you're sitting here talking about a human being that's being affected, even though that's your career is to prosecute or defend people, the two of you sitting here have seen things that someone like me may have never seen in my entire life. And for you to have to take that shit home every day and then not even have a place to talk to somebody and release that, you're carrying that with you every day. So it's not unimaginable that someone would turn to to alcohol or drugs or to having affairs, or even like the story, committing suicide. It's not unimaginable that anybody in that position seeing those things on a daily basis and just having to tuck it down every day and go back and see it every day. You know, I I sit here as a normal human being and I commend the both of you because that's a difficult career field to be in, seeing that shit on a daily basis. Well, Robin, I would would say that when I thought about preparing for the show and one of the things we've talked about is you know, a couple words have come up a lot, you know, not having an adequate release uh, point of stressors or a healthy release point of stressors. 
But, you know, when I, like I said, you know, I don't want this show to be all about lawyers, as I said in the intro. And I thought a lot about you when I was preparing this show, thinking about you caring for your ailing mother. Right. And how many people are out there doing that or, or something, it's something that they're going to do at some point in their lives and not having that release, right? Because you go home from work and she's there, right? Yeah. And, you know, dynamics of the relationship aside, that's got to be one of those situations where you don't have someone you can gripe to, right? Like, you know, Jeff and I might be able to go to a colleague and say, blah, 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 you know, and, and gripe about some, I, you know, he'd go gripe about me and I'd go gripe about him back in the office, right? Right. But you don't have that. So, you know, talk, can you speak to that a little bit? You know, I, I had this conversation with someone the other day because I'm the strong one. I'm the one that everyone turns to when something goes wrong. I'm the one that always shuts up and listens. I provide that space for people. And being the strong one is a difficult place to be because you don't know who to call when things go sideways. You just learn to sit and deal with it. And it's not an easy place to be because, you know, I'm not close to my parents. People know that. I've talked about it on this show before. And my dad having recently just passed away, now I'm having to financially take on the burden of my mother and it is difficult because I can't move out she's never driven a car she's never balanced a checkbook she doesn't know how to do anything and what am I going to do walk away from that even though I'm not close to her the human being in me you've said this to me many times Kirk the human being in me has to be a human being and I can get past a lot of the trauma that happened in my youth because I had to being forced to look at that at the age of 17 when my father said, well, you, you're underage, you took a drink of beer, you deserve being raped, and mother not supporting me, I didn't know where to turn. I had to learn how to deal with that. And I don't think I'd be here today if I didn't have my son. My son is what gave me that ammunition to keep moving forward. And I do have a couple of people that I can call. And the sad part is um, they have lives too. So I can't always expect them to be there. Um, one of the people that I kind of depended on that for a number of years passed away two days after my dad did. But the last year of our conversations were always one-sided. It was always him talking about the shit going on in his life. And I could never talk about my stuff. So I turned to writing or I jump in the car and take a drive and blast the music and just get out of town because... I don't know how else to deal with the stress. I never had people who would sit and listen to me. Kirk, you and I have that relationship. I can count on you for that. And that's what I'm grateful for, that you're in my life. I call you my coach all the time because that's exactly who you are. You're the one that calls me out on shit. You're the one that tells me you're better than that, Robin. You know better. You deserve better. You're always that person in my, in my corner championing me. And I have a couple of people that I can turn to, that I can talk to. But as I said, a lot of times they're not available and it's difficult. It's difficult to deal with that stress. And I thank God that I have other vices because drugs doesn't do anything for me. Alcohol, I like to drink on occasion, but for some reason, I just, I feel like I'm strong enough to handle stress and I've learned how to just 
let it go off my back like a tortoise shell. And I know that's, I know that's weird when you hear that because what we're trying to get at is how do we deal with that stress? But again, for me, when I get pissed off, when I get upset and there's no one there, I turn to my computer and I write. I get it out of me because if I don't, it's going to fester. And every day when I have to walk into that house and I see this woman who is my mother, there's days when I wish I could tell her to just leave me alone, but I don't say it because then it causes her to go into some sort of mental tirade and then I have to deal with that. So instead, I just say hi to her and then I go straight to my room and I shut the door. That's my sanctuary and I've had to explain it to her a number of times. Look, when I work a 12, 14 hour day and I have numerous people, I see up to 20, 25 people every day in my studio, show hosts, guests, people coming in. There's just days when, when I go home, that's my time. Uh, I can't, I can't comfort her right now in her widowdom. I mean, I was a widow at 33. So I've been there 20 years ago. This is stuff she has to do on her own. And she's now trying to talk to me more and more. And when I come home from work, I don't even want to talk to her because she stresses me out. I need that space. So I will say hi and bye as quick as I can and make my way to the bedroom because I cannot deal with that additional stress of I'm still dealing with all the legalities of my father's death because this is less than 10 days that he died. So I'm trying to handle it as best as I can. But, you know, I am grateful for your friendship, Kirk, yeah. because you are, you, you know, like I told you last week when you were up here, what had happened with her. Yeah. I had to tell somebody, and you were the only person I could think of. Well, you know what? You know, one thing that I think is great about this conversation in particular, and three of us coming from different backgrounds, is that there's so, so many common elements and themes to exactly the stories that just came out of both of your mouths. And, and the main theme being not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to bring that into the home. And because what Jeff said is completely accurate to, to my experience and same for what you said and Robin in a different manner, right? Like I think about the times in my life, particularly when I started doing death penalty work, right? You have somebody's life in your hands, and regardless of what you think of them or what they did or anything else, obviously that's kind of something that is an aside, really, ultimately to a defense attorney's job in a capital case. But you're always dealing with somebody's son, somebody's daughter, um, somebody's brother or sister, right? And they're looking at you. And the problem is you can't really, you know, and there's obviously there's issues with attorney-client privilege and things of that nature, but you, you can't really come home and talk about it, and you don't really want to, right? Like, you know, when I came home from the Arius ordeal, we'll call it politely today, <laughs> you know, the last thing I wanted to do was talk about my day, right? And I always believed that that those kind of conversations actually can poison a marriage or relationship. Cause when you come home and you just spew all this bile into onto your spouse, right. Then the home doesn't become a refuge, right. It right. becomes a, it becomes a repository, a, you know, a dumpster, if you will. So I, what Jeff said a minute ago resonated completely with me, but the problem becomes, you know, I think there's, there's two 
things that are so important to this discussion, one being release of that stress, whether it's through friends that can understand, et cetera, and the other being, I think, the, the continued quest as human beings to be perfect, right? We always put that on ourselves. Jeff was talking about, you know, all these people looking to him to, you know, Say you know, save them. Make sure you don't screw up the case. Everything else, and you got to be perfect. And and it's obviously, a lot of pressure. right? It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And there's there's no release valves. And Jeff, I want to talk about the the transition because I don't have an experience with addiction, but I want to talk about how you now deal with. Stress. I know you're a recovering lawyer, and that probably helps reduce the stress. Well, as of like last week when I <laughs> told the bar I was retired, yeah. But yeah. I really haven't been practicing. But you haven't been practicing years. for a while. So you've been on the road to recovery and just finalized it um, right. in recent days. But talk to me, because I think, you know, I always like when I do these shows with Robin, and she blesses me with the opportunity to sit here, that I always like to feel like I want somebody to have something to take away from it. And I'm curious what your alternative, what you find now in terms of releasing stress, what works for you in, in that healthy, in that healthy space? Awesome question. Um, I have a good answer, but before I get to that, you know, Robin, I've only met you once before and, and you shared some stuff that I didn't know about you, what you've been through and relating, especially to your father and uh, that was heartbreaking. I just wanted to say thank you for sharing it. I'm really sorry that happened to you. Thank you. Don't make me cry, dude. Too late. <laughs> um, don't worry. Don't worry, Jeff. I could. <laughs> I could drop a pan. He, he likes. To, he likes to make me cry. On no, the shows. I don't. I, know I was, you I was I thinking know you I might cry during the intro. Should I get you some tissue? No, I'm. I'm I think okay. I'm fine now. Okay, good. I think I'm fine now. I don't know. Maybe Jeff's gonna make me cry too. Let's give, give it a shot, Jeff. Yeah, I'm pretty random. Who knows where I'll go? <laughs> um, but yeah, Robin. Let's just say I, I prosecuted sex offenders not for the money. Like I've always been passionate about that type of thing happening, especially as it pertains to a minor, somebody taking their innocence, and uh, the lack of of support. Is, is tough for me to hear, but it's not the first time I've heard something like that. Um, all right, Kirk, what do I do now? There's a couple of habits from my stressed out days in my 30s and 20s that I've carried over, which is nice and kept me from circling the drains quicker with booze. Uh, I love to read, gets me out of my head, and I've always liked to exercise. Problem is both of those are solitary activities. So they, they could get me out of my head, but they couldn't get me to adult, like talk about my problems or deal with them differently with my friends. Um, what happened to me right around my 40th birthday was uh, being intoxicated at work on my last day, um, getting walked out of the office, humiliated, and um, finally having enough pain where there was nowhere to go, go but up, and I had no more shame uh, to keep me from saying something to a group of strangers. Um, and those group of strangers were a recovery. Uh, those are some of my best friends still today. And, you know, I was more vulnerable with some of them in the first week than I've been with some of my oldest friends from college or high school, just because I know them differently. We had something in common. So my, my takeaway for 
uh, non-addicts out there is find your people. Find people that have had a common struggle as you that you won't feel embarrassed talking about. And it's really easy to do now, whether it's online Zoom or just like meetup meetings. Um, find your people. Um, my people were alcoholics, and they understood how far you can fall and how devastating it is to just be done shucking and jiving and have everyone know you're a drunk. And those were my people, and those are my people. I think a lot of other people, especially, let's say, men in their 40s and 50s, probably everybody in their middle age, but they need a reset, hard reset in life where they can find new people, new friends, new goals, and cut out some of the toxic people because when you your head clears, you realize. And I know this is a topic on the show often. Yeah, you realize you got to do some of that too. So anyway, I, I threw a lot back at you there, Kirk. I hope I made a couple of good points. Well, no, I think I think you did, and I think one of the things you know in one of my books that I wrote to to try to help lawyers was you know this idea that I think pe- sometimes people think they're doing what you just out you know outlined in terms of talking to friends when they're really not right and i'm sure all of us have been at happy hours with especially when you know if we work in an office with a bunch of people right and it's quote unquote happy hour what happens at happy hour people sit around and bitch and complain about mm-hmm. the county you know the county attorneys or the defense attorneys or or you know whatever it might be right and so it's not it's it's cathartic it appears to be cathartic right but you're still kind of swimming in shit soup because you're you're just pouring out all that negativity, and you know what whatever level of drinking or, or non drinking is involved in that, I always think like that isn't helpful. And I, I want to go back, and Robin's going to recognize this mantra because what you said about friends and finding your people, right? I always I've talked on this show before about A friends, B friends, and C friends. And A friends are those friends that lift you up. They help you. They lift you up. They make you happier, et cetera. Um, B friends are those that sometimes are kind of a drag on you, and sometimes they do lift you up and, and positive to your life, right? And the C friends are usually those ones, those ones that are almost always drag. Like the person, you know, we've all got people when they, when they call on the phone, you go, oh, crap, right? Yep. And those are what I would call C friends because they always bring you down. And like my mentor, uh, Sean Stevenson, said, you know, those friends you got to say see you later to, right? And Robin's heard me say this probably enough times she could have said it word for word. I was actually going to bring it up until you said it. Yeah, but it, it's so important to have those people that empower us, and we don't think about that because those are the people, those people that empower us. It goes back to what Robin said earlier. Those people that empower us are those people that we can call and that can understand it can resonate and maybe not exactly right maybe not exactly the same way like if you were to give me a call jeff and say hey you know and talking about your your drinking or whatever i wouldn't be able to direct you know relate directly to that you haven't had listerine in a pinch no i haven't had listerine <laughs> in a pinch but but i can relate to the unhappiness and the stress and the strive for perfectionism that led to the drinking, right? And as I was one thing I say on this show a lot is is the commonality of the experience regardless of the the label that we're wearing at the time, right? I just heard you and Robin basically tell me the same story 
about isolation mm-hmm. and and not having people to talk to and, and not having good people to talk to and then talking about the value of having positive people to talk to. And, and also, like Robin, I've always been a good listener. It sounds like you are. People come to you and unload. Mm-hmm. So I told myself everything was on, you know, in balance because I have these conversations. But guess what? I wasn't talking about myself. Nope. I still don't love talking about myself, uh, but that's where these people that had a common struggle with me check in with me if, if I've gone silent. They know silence is not a good place for me. And I'll go there quickly if you let me, and I get some bad thoughts in my head. And Robin, we've talked about this quest to be perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Tell me how, does, does that resonate with you when you talk about caring for your mother or any, anything of that nature? As far as what? Being perfect? Yeah. Like, is there just like this handle it all and take care of it and be Wonder Woman and and set unreasonable standards for yourself? No, I've learned over the past few years that I can't set those unreasonable standards for myself. I just know that I can't take her shit on, on top of my own. My number one thing in life, and this is from having my son at a very young age and then getting divorced at 20 and being on my own with no help in this kid, I learned how to deal with the financial stuff. So that stuff doesn't stress me out. I don't get freaked out about it. I, you know, what pissed me off is a few months ago before he got COVID and beat it, and then he ended up dying anyway, we had him on hospice. She freaked out on me. Well, that means he's going to die. I said, no. Let me explain how this is going to work for you. Right now, the regulations say you can't get into a nursing home. The government says no. If he dies, you're going to regret that. Trust me. I was there when my husband died. I didn't want to be a widow at 33, but I was there, and I took care of what needed to be done for my own heart and soul with that man that I loved that died. I said, that's the one thing you need. So I got that shit together with her and got it straight. But when he died, she freaked out again. She wanted me to quit my job and go find a full-time job. I said, look, you don't get it. I have been in this industry for 33 years, and I have finally found a home where I work, where I'm respected, where I am treasured as the person I am, and the owner talks to me one-on-one, which I never got that. She didn't understand a lot of stuff, but I had to set that straight with her. Anytime she goes off on her little tirades, I walk away from it because I have to de-stress from that. I can't, I can't allow her to impose and project onto me what she's going through. She's going to have her own shit to go through. And now, as I told you last week, Kirk, she's now realizing she was not a good mother to me. But a few days ago, we had it happen again where she threw this uh, fit. And I told her, I said, look, all you have to do is take a deep breath and say, I fucked up, I'm sorry, and now I'm going to work on forgiving myself. And she said to me, she goes, I can't. And I'm sorry, but as much growth as I've made in the past few years, especially with working with you, Kirk, I just looked at her and I'm like, fuck you. And I walked away because she likes to play the victim. She's not willing to move past the victimhood and just say it out loud It has nothing to do with what she needs to say to me. I know I'll never get the apologies. It's for her own benefit. She's not going to live very much longer. She's 81. Why can't you just get past it? And she's holding on to it because she likes playing victim and getting attention from it. And that's sad to me. But 
in my state of mind, there's nothing she can say that will affect me now because everything that was said that affected me was in my youth. And that was hard to get past as a young girl, eight years old, being cast aside for someone else's children. And then at 17, being attacked physically and not having the support of either one of them. But I've learned how to be that survivor. And the little shit doesn't stress me out. I live every day to the fullest. And I deal with so many personalities in here. And if I allowed the stress to get at me, I would be a fucking mental case. And I'd probably go downstairs and put a bullet in my head too, because that's what you can do if you're pushed to that point. Well, and I think, Robin, what, what you're saying too makes, it makes me actually think Robin listens to me every once in a while, which is cool. I listen to you a lot more <laughs> than you realize, my friend. But one of the things I think that's emblematic of this, and this is one of those other commonalities when you're talking about um, your mom and Jeff's talking about some of his stressors and me and mine, is that oftentimes I think we're, we're taught when we grow up to care for each other above ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And there's that just that simple thing when you when you board an airplane, right? Well, I know not many of us have done that lately, but you put your gas, you put your mask on your, yourself first before you can help others, and that's to me one of the biggest things that aids in stress is self care. Ultimately, what I call self care, taking care of yourself. Jeff spoke to it a little bit with exercise and, and reading and some of those other things. Because it's so easy in a world where we're busy and everything else to push self-care aside, right? Mm-hmm. We say, oh, well, you know, I got to do this. I got to do that. Th- this will make me more money or I, need, I should check this email at work or whatever. And cell phones only exacerbate the problem, right? You oh, know? yeah. And so it then it becomes this idea where we're not stopping, whether it's at five o'clock because we've got our cell phone and we've got more emails to answer, or whatever it is, or it's you know your conversations with your mom or, or that sort of thing. Just not stopping to take care of ourselves, and I and I and I don't mean in the you know eating unhealthy food and that kind of thing. That's not self care because that's what self-care can become like to some degree you know jeff going out for a drink he was probably convincing himself that yeah he was just kind of de-stressing from the week and he was getting ready to take on the next week well that's not self-care right that's medication that's you know whatever you want to call it but that's the opposite of self-care in the same way you know back in the day you know i would go out i would do the same thing with food to some degree like Okay, you know, I exercise, I eat, I, I, you know, I had a tough week. I'll go out for a cheeseburger. Okay, right? And because, because, frankly, I saw so much drinking in my colleagues, that was my alternative, right, to drinking. It's like, okay, go out and have a cheeseburger and everything else to de-stress. And a lot of people do that, right? Right. It feels good. I mean, it starts like, like you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a horrible thing to say, but I remember getting a good report card and grandma would take me out to Baskin and Robbins, right? Right. But that's a reward for food. You, you did good, mm-hmm. you get a reward, right? And we get those kind of unhealthy habits and we stop refusing to take care of ourselves. We stop putting a priority on it. I mean, you know, I'm into meditation now. Anybody who's listening to the show, I'm into meditation. I enjoy reading. I enjoy the exercising. 
But all those sort of things are just something that I think we need to move to the forefront before, hopefully, before we hit rock bottom, right? Because Jeff talked about, you know, being walked out of the office, uh, you know, being, being intoxicated at work. And, and, and I remember, you know, after I got my cancer diagnosis, wonder, going to that dark place, wondering if I was going to go into the chemo chair because I didn't know that my life was worth saving through and, and enduring all that and just maybe just living a few more months and, and calling it good, as it were. So, yeah, if we start taking care of ourselves, and, and Robin, as Robin just really spoke to a moment ago, we start changing that because the stressors become less significant. You know, I come up with this, uh, this word, Robin, you might have heard me say this before, um, is that if you're, if you're not going to worry about whatever it is on your deathbed, then don't worry about it now because it's a moment in your life. Exactly. You know, and I've had this conversation numerous times with so-called friends who complain that they're in this bad situation and they're always dumping their negative shit onto me. And I'm listening to this and I'm like, um, you know, there is such a thing called change. Yeah, but if I walk out of this relationship, then I lose my house, my vacation property, and I've worked really hard for this. But, you know, she's putting men in front of my face. Why can't I put women in front of her face and make her jealous? And I'm like, you know what? How old are you now? You're almost 60. You're, you're doing this. What, what the fuck are you thinking? You don't have that much life left. And you're sitting here working 70, 80 hours a week and you're miserable as fuck. Why can't you make a change? I, I have a hard time understanding how people are so afraid of change and walking away from something that's just not healthy. I mean, Kirk, you burned your damn law degree. Yeah. I mean, that that is a statement. That Liter- is- literally burned my certificate from the state Supreme Court. And you go to school for a long time to become lawyers, boys. I mean, come on. that's Well, Washington State University. <laughs> well, I didn't go to law school there, Jeff. <laughs> Jeff went to the rival school and was a charter member of the, the, the frat house. I'm, I'm sure they still have his picture up on the on the wall i'm but, sure his activities just talked about but but hang on jo- i get to rebut jokes aside <laughs> i'm sorry no, I, your grades weren't better uh, oh now i see now i forgot what i was gonna i was gonna ask um well i'm curious though since you forgot okay. i'll bring it up um was that your darkest moment when you were basically walked out of work or did you hit rock bottom at another time um well, that was the ultimate rock bottom because my last drink was the next day. That was May 1st, and I haven't had a drink since May 2nd, 2014. What that means is I actually had to walk through that sober. So a couple of weeks of no sleep, partial nervous breakdowns, and trying to, I mean, my whole life was, and my whole ego was wrapped up in that job. Um, and I had been very successful with it. And um, so it was hard to walk through that sober, but I had a decision to make. It was either drink myself to death or like out of my marriage and just kind of just end my life or get sober the next day. Can I interrupt? I want to interrupt because this does kind of take to my question. I think it's important too, because this is a common thread you touched on. You said your ego was too wrapped up in that job. Why do you think that was looking back? Well, my professional life was very different than my personal life because I had a different set of friends on weekends. I mean, I lost some of those in, going into my 30s when the drinking got bad, but my, my friends from my 20s were so different 
than my colleagues at work, and they saw me so differently that I always had to put on, uh, I was always acting my way through work to some extent, not doing the work part of it, but as far as how I wanted people to perceive me, it was all as a hardworking, ethical prosecutor. And then I would blow off steam in Las Vegas on a weekend, and they wouldn't be any the wiser for it. Um, so it was a lot, of, a lot of maintaining the image. Correct. And, and as the alcohol started taking a hold, it was harder to um, keep that separation. You know, we try until we can't anymore. And, and what I tell people is the one thing that needed to happen to me because I've been shucking and jiving for so long, was to be drunk at work and get caught. Looking back, do you think you did that intentionally, even though not consciously? Perhaps. Um, my relapse story, I should, I should give a little bit more of it. I was sober for a year and a half, but hating being sober. Um, going to meetings, but didn't feel like I was part of these people. They're talking about DUIs, and I'm you know, never been arrested and I'm prosecuting people, right? So I was separating myself from them. And that's the worst thing you can do. Right. That's not finding your people. That's finding why you can't relate to people. And so I started looking for the commonalities. Um, I'm sorry, what was your question? Well, my question was, it, it dealt with image and ego and why you felt so wrapped up in that. And, and then ultimately, when you were sober, you were still you still had the stressors, right? For a, a year and a half or what have you, you said you were sober. So I guess my question would be: Did you ultimately think that this you you sabotage yourself to put an end to the misery, like by showing up drunk? Right now, I remember kind of where I was going with that story too, um, and I tell people this all the time, like. The solution for somebody who's always trying to put on an act and separate his unhealthy life from his work life is to parachute that person into work on a Thursday afternoon uh, after he lost track of alcohol uh, use that week. Like, drinking at work was not my story. I was telling you guys how I relapsed. It was after a year and a half, I went to a, a kind of a dream trip to the Masters Golf Tournament with my father, who raised me watching the Masters every Sunday. It was the most special time we had. Uh, by the way, hi, Dad, love you. Uh-huh. Um, and hey, he's going to listen to this. Not if she keeps dropping f bombs. <laughs> sorry, it is get real. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't, I don't well, I'm sure he's a gentleman, but I don't know that he has virgin ears. But. I'm a lady, but I still swear. Sorry. Yes, this uh, is true. So, I, I came back from. So I decided I just got to drink on this work trip with my dad. Yeah. And he tried to talk me out of it, but I was going to drink in Atlanta before going and after going to the Masters. And I was going to fly home, not tell my wife that I drank that weekend, and nobody would be the wiser. Well, I I went into that full, well knowing that alcohol can take a grip, and and it you don't decide when you stop drinking; it decides when it's done with you. Um, when you're an alcoholic, so I came back, and I just uh, that next couple of weeks at work, I was drinking a lot at night. I was really nervous during the day. I ended up going to. Um, urgent care and getting a prescription for something so I wouldn't have to like go to rehab. I knew alcohol was getting away from me. Um, And then the pill they gave me and said, don't drink with it mixed with whatever was in my system from this two week bender. And I just kind of lost my bearings the last couple days at work. I think there was alcohol in my system at some, some points. And I had to account for that, you know, with the bar, I, I, I did a whole bunch of things to be honest and apologetic for, 
bringing a lot of people in to clean up my mess that I could have taken care of. So all that guilt and shame was overwhelming. And fortunately, it, it drove me into the hands of recovery all in. And for me, that meant opening up a, a sober house within about six to 12 months and running that for a few years because I just had to stay close to recovery. Well, now you're and, talking about how the alcohol affected your professional life. How did it affect your personal life? Um, yeah, that was interesting. I mean, my wife is not an alcoholic. And a lot of our you know, courting time and early marriage before we had our, our daughter, Kayla. Hi, Kayla. When you can listen to this in eight years or so. <laughs> I like the fact that you use courting. Like it's the 1920s. Yeah, like you just, guys were dating in the 20s and you would come and in a wagon, yep. in a covered wagon and pick her up. I had a quicker version. I would I just pour a really strong drink and hand it to her and put on some music. <laughs> it was kind of my mo. Um, so we drank a lot together on weekends, and she knew it was starting to get away from me, but she couldn't stop me from drinking. Um, there were, you know, things happened that got me to try. Yes, did she try? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, but some things happened to get me into recovery that that year and a half, but I wasn't ready for it. Again, I can't say this strongly enough. You can't go into a meeting like that or hang out with people and look for the differences. You have to look for the similarities. So I dropped all the BS about being a lawyer and not having any, any you know, convictions and all these things that I was judging other people for. These are the best people I've, I've ever met, and they're, they're solid. So it, shout it, out to all my, my people in recovery out there. Yeah, isn't that so true? That, you know, the image and the the sanctity we get from that. And, you know, I've talked when I was back when I was coaching lawyers right after I stopped practicing, a common theme around the lawyers I would talk to was they didn't want to give up that status. That status meant so much to them. And Jeff, when you were talking about image, I thought about our friend here, Robin, who might have had the kind of exact opposite problem because as, as someone who was a DJ and various other things, a pro wrestler. We learned this the other day. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to put me in a headlock, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) which will play really good on radio. But um, you must have had the opposite problem. Like Jeff and I, I think I always felt like I had to be buttoned up to a certain degree, which was uncommon for defense attorneys. Most defense attorneys are you know, fuck the man, fight the powers, all that stuff. And you don't think we were on radio? They're going to go out. No, but that's what I'm saying. It was, I'm, I'm saying I still tried to keep that, that image to some degree, right? But you must have had the opposite problem because your image uh, as Rock and Robin, you must have been the party girl, right? And that maintaining that image must have been something else. Not really. Here, no? here, here's the funny thing. Back when I used to, the, the only problem I ever had with that is I never had an image to maintain because I didn't give a shit. This is just me being me. Yeah. And when I worked for the music publication, the owner of the publication, he used to tell me, do not help the bands carry their equipment in to the clubs. Someone t- called me and said, you were helping the bands. I'm like, well, what the hell else am I supposed to do? They're friends of mine. Yes, but you're the assistant to the editor of this publication. You're the second in command. I don't want people viewing you as that person. Same thing. Every time I wrote an article in the magazine about delivering the magazine, my son and I would take and deliver them from Tucson all the way up to Flagstaff and everywhere in between. JJ would take it out of my article. I'm like, why would you remove that and edit it? 
It was done. He goes, because I don't want people knowing that you're in the car with your son delivering these magazines. I'm like, they see me. I never knew what it was to have an image. I wasn't like Dave Pratt. Well, what, what about when you were in the, on radio, though? I mean, there yeah, must but be. It's, it's, in radio, nobody knows who your face is because most of the time I wasn't full-time in radio. I had to work a real job to make money because radio didn't pay. I was one of the top radio jobs I had. $4.50 an hour. That'll tell you how far back that went. Were, I, you, were you in the 20s with Jeff? Did you guys go to school together? <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's the whole thing. I chose a career that was more passion-driven. I wasn't one of the lucky ones that had the big paycheck. I always had to work other jobs to have that career on the side. I was doing weekend overnights. I did finally get to a full-time position in radio, but I was doing traffic reporting on a number of stations every day, along with producing for other radio and TV personalities who were doing the traffic as well. That's where I finally hit the pinnacle of my career at 30, at 30 years in the business, making 30 G's a year. And I had an education in this that cost me 12 grand. So I'm sitting here going, okay, I spent 30 years in this business and I officially retired making 30 grand. So that's pretty pathetic. But the fact of it is I was doing what I love to do, but I wasn't one of those DJs that was highly recognizable because my face wasn't on the billboards. It wasn't on the side of buses. When I was part of a morning show, I was the guy that was doing the grunt work, taking the station van out and washing it, buying donuts for the morning crew. I was never that big of a personality that anybody would recognize me. So I didn't have any problems with image. Um, they did, some of the radio stations I worked for made me sign those clauses that I wouldn't do stupid shit to get arrested and make them look bad. But, you know, for the most part, my, my career working in radio and television and publication here, it was the magazine that gave me the worst of the image thing. I didn't have a real image to worry about because I wasn't the big radio celebrity like, they're, like a lot of these people are. The internet didn't exist in the prime of my radio career back in the 80s into the 90s. I mean, I retired in 2006. So, you know, and now that I'm back in it again, it's different. Now I'm more exposed, but everybody knows my platform that it's get real. That's what this show is. It's get real with Robin. That's the way social media, that's what I put out there. And I'm not afraid of my image, but I, I did make a promise to the owner here. I said, look, there's a couple subjects I will never ever talk about and I will never put on my social media because I understand I'm in a position now where I am the face of the network for most of the time I'm the one that's here most of the time doing the job because they're doing what they need to do and they're allowing me to do what I do so now I do have to worry about image to some degree but I have his permission to be me and that's all I need so I don't have the image issues like everyone would assume I do you know and I think that that's so important, though, because, you know, one of the things that can happen is that a career, and I think about this man I, I read about, you know, referenced in the first segment in the intro of the show, you know, so many people thought he had it all together, right? He was a successful lawyer and everything else. And in essence, he had an image to maintain that might not have been an image that he wanted to maintain. And I think one of the things that I've found so much in stepping away from my stressors and, and, you know, making that decision when I decided to go into the chemo chair and fight for more years is to not live them, 
the same way as I had before. And part of that was knowing that that would strip away everything I had built, right? And I think you referenced change, and there's been conversations about change before, and that becomes that becomes a fear, right? We fear that, oh, my gosh, if we're going to, if we change careers or anything else, especially we've gone, you know, to law school or, or whatever it might be, medical school, nursing school, and you say, I'm miserable, we're so afraid to give that up because we've been indoctrinated into this kind of system of not only capitalism and competition, but where, and I know, Robin, you've heard me say this before, where happiness is supposed to be a byproduct of those things Mm -hmm. and where we don't put happiness in the first position. And that's one of the things that I decided to do uh, when I decided to go in that chemo chair. And and because I think, you know, we're, we're getting close towards the end of the show. I just, Jeff, I'd love to hear you talk about one of the things I think it's universal um, when we talk about this subject is the idea of happiness. Because when we're happier, we're not doing those self-destructive behaviors. And I want to talk about your shift towards happiness because you're probably a happier guy now than you were back in 2006 or 2007 when we were standing in courtrooms together on a daily basis. I am happier now than I've been in 47 years of my life. I mean, no doubt at all. I got, I'm doing something I like to do. I'm helping people and I'm not trying to control situations. My life in the last seven years has all just kind of unfolded into cool stuff because I got honest with myself and I got honest with some people and there's nothing I won't talk about if I can help people with my story. Um, happiness for me now, yeah, I, I don't need it to be the end of the week with the right movie on and the right amount of alcohol in my system and the right food in front of me. Like that was the pinnacle before, right? Just some kind of a party, frivolous blowing off of steam. Now it's getting up, not being hungover, reaching out to some people and letting things kind of unfold, not, not trying to control them. That's really the biggest change. I used to be a control freak and would kind of fly off the handle anytime things didn't go as I hoped. And that's very common when you get in recovery and people start getting open. Well, it's uh, common when you walk on the street because we're yes. all trying to do that, right? But we don't talk about it unless right. we have our people. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I didn't get to talk about it and, and learn how to be Jeff, not Jeff at work and Jeff drunk, who's trying to entertain people or be an idiot. I'm just Jeff, and I can be an idiot all the time now, and I don't care. <laughs> Ask yeah, my I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna let that softball slide by, but no, Kirk <laughs> no. and I Bring can it. be idiots too, yeah, so we're good. <laughs> we're good at it. When I we're, met Robin, we were both pretty much idiots at Coffee Rush, and That's hence true, we're here. Uh. And we started <laughs> making each other laugh for no reason, and hence we're here. And the the value of being an idiot. But Robin, as we close out, I'd like to get your perspective because I think you know happy people don't do some of the destructive behaviors that that we see. Um, you know, and that's all aspects of life, right? Whether the the drinking is related to professional stress or anything else. So when we talk about stress, what would you tell our listeners in terms of prioritizing happiness? What advice would you give them as someone who's who's seen a lot and done a lot and is now caring for an aging parent? Well, you already said it earlier, and I've heeded that advice 
greatly. And that's where you talk about the A, B, and C friends. And just in the past few years, I have learned that I can't save everyone. And this actually goes back to the late 90s. I met a a mechanic who became, he owned his actual own shop. And one of his guys told me, I didn't even know this guy. He looks at me, he goes, Robin, I got to tell you something. It's time for you to step down off the cross. You can't save everyone. That statement has stuck with me for over 20 years. You know, I can't forget that because I'm the person that wants to save everyone because I had no one there to save me. I had to figure it out. And it was hard. It was very difficult as a teenager going through that, trying to figure out how. But I got to a point where I stopped trying to figure out how and I just lived. I just started doing. Because if we spend too much time thinking about how, then we get caught up in the minutia of the bullshit. And that's where we start sliding backwards. We get depressed. We reach out for that drug, that alcohol. For me, it was, you know, I did have some sort of an addiction, even though it was just learning how to get into being a young woman. I had sex with a lot of guys. I had a lot of sex. And I didn't give a shit that I gave myself away. I did friends with benefits for 12 and a half years. I didn't care. I wasn't looking for a man to raise my kid. So when I take a cold, hard look at myself, that's where my destruction happened because I gave way too much of myself away, but I didn't think about it because I was having a good time. That was my choice. That was my drug of choice. But when I look at where I am now, The biggest thing is you have to know when to say no. That is the hardest thing for most people to understand that they can say no. You don't have to be there to rescue everybody. You don't. If that person is draining you, if they're an energy vampire, block their damn phone number. Let it go to the backside. I have a block system on my phone. That's why when we talked before about erasing people from our contact log, I won't do that because I want to make sure they're blocked. I will not see their number come up. It goes straight to the backside. They go straight to voicemail. I don't get text messages from them. And then they go to Facebook Messenger and freak me out like, why aren't you answering me? And I choose to ignore. I put them in the ignore cycle because I cannot allow that energy drain to take away from my life because that's stress. That is a lot of stress to hold on to that you have to save everybody. You, the biggest thing that I've learned, I have to save myself because I'm tired of giving that much energy away. And at the end of the day, there's nobody there to rescue me but me. And if you don't have enough energy to do that for yourself, then you're giving way too much of yourself away. And you have to learn to pull those pieces of yourself back Because that's what the important thing is. We don't talk enough about self-love and self-care. And that is one of the biggest lessons I've learned through my whole entire life, being the age I am now, and just in the past couple of years, finally getting to a point where I love myself completely. And it was you who pointed that out to me, Kirk. And that was the greatest gift, knowing that, because there's not a damn thing now that can be thrown at me that I can't handle or that I can't just turn around and walk away from because I don't care anymore. I have decided that that four agreements, don't take it personally because it has absolutely nothing to do with you. They are who they are and they're going to do what they're going to do, but you have to learn to take care of yourself first and foremost. And that's how I deal with the stress. I will shut it off. 
I will shut it down and I will walk away. I will not allow anybody to put that stress on me because I have to take care of myself. And that's the bottom line. You have to take care of yourself and you have to understand that when it doesn't feel right, that it's okay to say no and it's okay to walk away. You know, I think that's great advice, that that whole power of no thing and, and really correlates to the idea of self-care and putting that mask on. The other thing that I want to say, you know, is as we wrap this up, you know, none of us here are, you know, qualified as it relates to the subjects of suicide or anything else. So I'm going to ask Robin to uh, put the suicide hotline uh, in the show notes. Um, so any of you who are dealing with that issue um, have an outlet right there available to you. But the other thing that I, I want to say when we talk about this subject is this idea that I don't know, and, and it might be just a different, different verbiage, but I don't know that we need to be rescued, and I don't need, know that we need to be saved. I think that we need to step back because a lot of stress is involved in the idea that things aren't happening the way we want them to we believe a certain a thing should be a certain way and it's not and that's where the source of stress can arise and what and i think just in that recognition we begin to close that gap and one of the other ways i think we can close that gap and start to minimize stress is to start to be grateful and that's one word that that hasn't come up here a lot today that i wanted to make sure that was said before we closed out this this show is the idea that when we're grateful for things then whatever stressors we have whatever lack we have whatever perceived lack we have because most of the time more often than not it's perceived lack not actual lack is the idea of standing in gratitude and i think there's always something to be grateful for and one of the things i started doing and i'm going to um share this with everyone in hopes that they maybe find someone to do this with is I have a friend that I text every morning. She and I text three things that we're grateful for from the day before the day after, you know, whatever it is that's going on in our lives that we're grateful for. And that just sets the intention of recognition, I guess, not the intention and a recognition of that we do have great things going for our life. And, you know, I wish that this attorney that, that killed himself could have thought about those things beforehand, right? Thought about those things before the stress because we really invite unhappiness in when we decide that we are in lack, that we are somehow short, that we are somehow imperfect, that we somehow need to achieve a certain thing, have a certain thing, make a certain amount of money in order to be perfect or be happy. When ultimately when we live in gratitude for the lives we have and we live in happiness and we just take that happiness. And I live now and I know it sounds um, trivial or, or maybe a bit um, silly, but one day at a time, right? This idea that you, 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 you go through your life and you're happy one day and you're not worried about, you know, is this job going to come through? Is this thing going to come through? Like I, I live with a lot of uncertainty. I don't have that steady paycheck, everything else. Are those things going to come through? And I realize I can't solve that all in one day. So I enjoy what I have that day, and I go to bed, and I do try to do the same thing the next day. And again, that might sound silly, 
But at the end of the day, if you live most of your days like that, then you're probably going to live a pretty happy life. So what I want to close out with tell people is make sure that you never forget to care for yourself, that you never forget to truly love yourself. And if you can't find a way to do that, as Jeff and Robin and I have said during this conversation, you find the people that can help you find that path to do just that. Wow. Thanks, guys. Appreciate having you both here with me. I love that. And as always, thanks for listening. Take care. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Get Real with Robin. Join Robin Cote and her co-hosts, known as The Collective, each week as they delve into subject matters most are afraid to talk about, but really need to hear. Join us next week here on Star Worldwide Networks as we continue to get real. Get real.